And I invite you this morning to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be putting in this morning verses 5 through 13. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last week we saw in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 that the Spirit affords freedom from sin's condemnation. Says the Apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And today we come to consider from verses 5 through 13 the truth that the spirit affords freedom from sin's control. Beloved, the word of God would have us understand that through the spirit of God, not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but we are free from the power of sin. In fact, this is made patently clear in verse 4, which says that God's saving purpose for those he has set free from the condemnation of the law and the condemnation of sin, notice verse 4, is that they might walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And for us to understand the thrust of what Paul is saying in this passage, we must have an understanding of what he means when he makes reference to the flesh. The flesh, of course, in Scripture can mean either the human body. Paul is not talking about the human body at this point, but he's speaking of the flesh from another standpoint. And the word flesh in this context could be defined as fallen human nature under the power and control of sin. The flesh is sinful human way of living, sinful human way of thinking without reference to the rule and will of God. Now Paul speaks of walking according to the flesh as against walking according to the spirit. And in scripture, walking, as we know, is sometimes used as a metaphor for one's way of life. It is used for one's lifestyle, the way one lives, so that to walk according to the flesh is to live in accordance with one's fallen, sinful nature. To walk according to the Spirit, on the other hand, is to live patterning one's life according to the Spirit. And hence, notice in verse 5 how that Paul switches to the alternative word live, a synonym for the word walk found in verse 4, contrasting thereby the lifestyles of believers and unbelievers. Now, this is very critical, what I'm about to tell you. Paul in this passage is not, is not talking about two types of Christians. Paul is not advocating here what some refer today as to as the carnal Christian. Now, it is true, Scripture will grant this, that it is possible for a true believer in Christ 
at least for some time, to be living like a person in the flesh. But please note what the Word of God suggests is that if this becomes a pattern of one's life, if it becomes a lifestyle, if this is one's modus operandi, as the saying goes, then that's a dangerous situation because in verse 6, you'll notice, Paul says there that to be carnally minded, in other words, to be fleshly minded, is death. In fact, later down in verse 13, he says this. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's not talking about death there in metaphorical terms. No, he's not talking about death there in some kind of mystical sense. He's talking about eternal death or what scripture refers to as eternal condemnation. Now, in keeping with our theme this morning, namely that the Spirit affords us freedom from sin's control, let's note that after stating God's purpose for those he has saved, which is that they no longer should walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, Paul in verses 5 through 13 spells out for us the practical implications of walking in the Spirit. In other words, the question this morning is, what does such a life look like? Paul is setting out for us, in clear terms, the marks or features of life in the Spirit, of what it means to live according to the Spirit. And there are four things which we want to consider this morning as very quickly in turn. First of all, we see from our text that a life in the Spirit, life in the Spirit, that is to say a life that is lived in accordance with the Spirit is a life, first of all, it's a life that's marked by a new preoccupation. Life in the Spirit is a life that is marked by a new preoccupation. That is to say, it is a life that is dominated by an entirely new passion. Here's the point this morning, beloved. The true believer in Christ is dominated by a passion that is contrary to his own life. Notice verses 5 and 6, which contrast those who live according to the flesh with those who live according to the Spirit. Here's what the Word of God says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The word mind here has to do with one's purpose, with one's intentions. The mind, please understand this, that you know this, that the mind is that which what? Drives and dictates and directs the course, the tenor of one's life. So that to have one's mind or heart set on something is to be driven with an intense desire, with an intense passion for that thing. Paul is affirming here a well-known fact of life, which is that we live, you and I live, in accordance with how and with what we think. Our whole way of life our lifestyle is really an expression of our mindset. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It is an expression of what we value, of what we set our hearts on. And this is precisely the thrust of verses 5 and 6. Paul is saying that sinful, fleshly living is the direct outgrowth of fleshly preoccupation. We see this, for example, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where Paul speaks of those he describes. This is how Paul describes certain people, certain people who profess to be Christians. Here's what Paul says of them. He speaks of them as enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you know, my friends, not everyone that says to me, Matthew 7, 21, 22, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. There are people who bear the garb, who have on, as it were, the garb of Christianity, who really are not saved. And what are they? In essence, Paul says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Paul goes on to say, whose end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds, here it comes, with minds set on earthly things. And here's a question this morning. What do you think on more often than not? Paul is saying here that we know a true believer from a false believer. We know a true believer from an unbeliever based on the mindset of that person. Paul is providing for us a yardstick whereby we may determine whether or not we are truly saved. The question is, what occupies your minds, your thoughts, your affections more often than not? Is it, my friend, that you're constantly thinking of some illicit activity, maybe some illicit affair, maybe the pursuit of, of, of liquor, of, of, of some substance? What is it that dominates your heart and mind, at the heart of ours? Where is your mind, where is your thinking in relation to the things of God? Paul says here, we have a true barometer, we have a true yardstick of the person who is truly saved in that the person who is truly saved is going to set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What do you constantly think about? Yes, we slip, yes, we fall, we all slip, we all fail, we all sin, but here's the question, when you sin and when you go after that which you should not go after, where is your heart, what is the state of your mind, does it grieve you, does it make you feel uncomfortable, do you cry out, oh God, help me to desire more than anything else, the things of the Spirit. My friends, the Word of God teaches that true believers will be spiritually minded. True believers will focus on the things of the Spirit. There's no question about that. As such, listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Paul says there, Since then you have been risen with Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, since then you have union with Christ. As a believer in Christ, he says this, Seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the mark of a true believer. That's non-negotiable. And the question is, beloved friends, saved, unsaved, on what do you think on what do you set your minds more often than not? Do you hunger, do you crave for the things of Christ? Do you crave, do you long for the word of God? Young people, do you crave to hear the word of God? Or do you crave to hear the latest pop song more often than not? There are people who would rather gravitate after sports. Sports is their God rather than the scriptures. There are people whose God, they think most of social media more than they do the word of God. On what is your mindset this morning? In the second place, we see from our text that life in the spirit or life that's lived according to the spirit is a life that has a new orientation. Life in the Spirit is a life that has a new orientation. Look at verses 7 through 9. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at the difference, verse 9. You, however, he's talking to believers in Christ. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone, here it comes, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul is speaking in clear terms, in black and white, not in shades of gray. He's saying categorically, we either are with it or we are not. We are either in Christ or we are outside of Christ. We are either living according to the Spirit or we are living according to the flesh. In these verses, Paul makes a stunning declaration regarding the true actual condition of every single human being as they stand in relation to God. 
And we say stunning because not even in popular religious thinking do we hear the kind of straight-up, clear-cut description of humanity as Paul presents it here in these verses. In fact, what Paul says here is not the kind of thing we would hear in popular evangelism, which tells people how God loves you and how good you are and God wants the best for you. It's the kind of content that's deemed offensive. That's what we have here in verses 7 through 9. No, people would rather hear how that God loves them, God welcomes them, unconditionally what with all their sins. You see, the popular default teaching in our time, beloved, is that while human beings may do things that are terribly evil, yet at heart they are essentially good. Isn't that the teaching that is in many a church today? The basic goodness of humanity. That if only their socioeconomic condition were improved, then we would see the best in them. Well, the misguided flaw of that kind of argument is that it considers the ills of humanity in purely external, superficial terms. Listen to all the talk today and notice how the emphasis is placed on people's location, their social location, their ethnicity, their access to economic resources. If only we could fix this, if only we could fix that, if only we could have more justice, the sociologists and strategists contend, then all would make for a better world. What these claims fail to recognize, however, is that the fundamental, the fundamental underlying problem, you see, of the human condition is this, that fallen and overtaken by sin, as they are under the power of sin, unsaved, unconverted people are at heart inimical toward God. They are at enmity with God. Alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart, to use the language of Ephesians 4 and verse 18. Notice in verses 7 through 9 that diagnosis of humanity from the perspective of the word of God. This is God's perspective of the human condition. First of all, we see that the word of God divides humanity into basically two classes, two categories. And here we go, somebody says, Pastor, are you suggesting that the Bible asserts class distinctions? Absolutely, yes. But what kind? Not socioeconomic, not ethnic. The Bible does not make distinctions between black and white, between red and yellow when it comes to people. The Bible is not, in fact, as far as the Bible is concerned, that category doesn't exist. Notice, rather. According to our text, the word of God bifurcates humanity into these two classes. On the one hand, those who are hostile to God do not submit to his word and are displeasing to him being in the flesh. We see that in verses 7 and 8. And on the other hand, here's the other class of people. Those who are in the Spirit and who are indwelled by the Spirit of God and belong to God. Two camps, two categories. Also suggested in verse 9 is the clear-cut distinction between those who have the Spirit and belong to God and those who do not have the Spirit and thus do not belong to God. You see, that's precisely where the problem is. So that the heart of the problem of sinful humanity really is the problem of what? The heart. Going back all the way to the dawn of human history, we see the outworking of this hostility between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Underscoring the truth of Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. We see this hostility toward God, first of all, in Cain, who not only brought an offering that was unacceptable to God, but who became so angry toward God, he projected his hostility on God so much so that he killed his brother Abel in cold-blooded murder. That's the first time, apart from the fall of Adam and Eve, that we see humanity hostile to God. We see it in Cain. 
God had to ask him, why are you angry? Why are you so cast down in spirit? And he was angry with God, and he was angry with his brother, so much so that he killed him in cold blood. The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. In the book of Exodus, we see how that Pharaoh exhibited hostility toward God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses and Aaron went to him with a message from the Lord, let my people go that they might serve me, what was Pharaoh's reply? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And yet... Even the face of repeated evidences of God's miraculous power, God's judgment upon Egypt, the word of God tells us that Pharaoh did what? He hardened his heart. That's what? Hostility toward God. In Jeremiah chapter 36 and verse 21, there was a king by the name of Jehoiakim, who as he sat in his palace and had the scroll of the word of God read to him. Do you know what he did with it? Every time a portion of the scroll was read, he would just cut it with a knife and throw it in the fire. He would just cut it with a knife, throw it in the fire, until the entire scroll was consumed. What is that? Hostility of the fleshly mind toward God. Here's what Jeremiah 36, 24, 25 says regarding that occasion. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments, even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. He was hard-hearted. He was calloused. He was resentful toward God. Why? Because evidently the word of God rubbed them the wrong way. The word of God challenged him in his sins. He was not prepared to change his ways and so hostility toward God. People today are still like that. In the face of the preaching of the word of God, they come under its convicting power. They walk away in anger. Sometimes they get angry with the preacher. Why? Because the fleshly mind is hostile toward God. And beloved, here's a sobering truth. We must not think that hostility toward God, watch this. We mustn't think that hostility toward God is true only of those people who we would readily describe as atheistic and wicked. The fact is, even deeply religious people, people who would readily consider themselves as loving God, fearing God, they too can be hostile toward God without even realizing it. You ask how so? To begin with, let's notice the grammar. Let's notice, this is very important. Let's notice the grammar of Paul's statement here in verse 7 where we read, and this is very important, verse 7 in our Bibles, you use the SV, it says this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And here's where most modern versions, including the ESV, is imprecise in their translation of this particular clause. To begin with, the Greek word that's translated hostile, we need to note is not an adjective. In many of our versions, it's translated as an adjective. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. In the Greek, the word is not an adjective. The word that's used in the Greek is actually a noun. It's actually a noun and should be translated enmity. So the verse really should read, for the mind that is set on the flesh is enmity to God. You say, what's the difference? A whole lot of difference. Big difference. Because the text is not primarily stating, watch this, the text is not, the text is not primarily stating that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, although that's true. That's not what the text is really saying. Now, you have to listen carefully because it's very nuanced. The point is not the mind, that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Here's what Paul is actually saying if we treat it as a noun. The text is making an even more serious charge, namely that the very fact that the mind is set on the flesh itself constitutes what? Enmity with God. So one does not even have to be actively consciously 
hostile and hateful toward God. One does not have to consciously feel a sense of antipathy toward God. You say to some people, you know, it, you, you really hate God. They say, me? Impossible. I pray, I read my Bible, I give to this cause, a church, and so on. How could you say I hate God? Listen, in Scripture, hatred of God is not necessarily attended by conscious feelings of aversion to God, of antipathy toward God. What the Word of God is saying here is this. The very fact that one is in a state, in a condition of being in the flesh, that itself constitutes enmity with God. Here's the point this morning, sobering point. Are you saved this morning? No, the Bible says you are in the flesh. And in consequence of that, the word of God says, you are at enmity with God. C.H. Spurgeon explains it very well, that in relation to God, the mind that is set on the flesh is enmity with God. Enmity itself. Notice what he says. It is not at enmity. The flesh is not at enmity, but enmity itself. It is not corrupt, but corruption. It is not rebellious, it is rebellion. It is not wicked, it is wickedness itself. It is evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. Here's what he says. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God. It is envy. It is not at enmity. It is actual enmity, end quote. That's a serious charge. One does not have to have a feeling, a conscious feeling of hatred and resentment toward God to hate God. All that one has to do to be in a condition of hate toward God is to be unconverted, is to be in the flesh. We know that, for example, because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus categorically declares, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Someone would say, well, I wouldn't say I'm for Christ and I wouldn't say I'm against him. I'm just kind of neutral. Jesus says, oh, no. Either you're with me or you're against me. Neutral you cannot be is what he's suggesting. Not to take a stand for me is to actually take a stand against me. Let me give you one more illustration to show you that hatred of God does not necessarily mean that one has a conscious feeling of antipathy or animosity toward God. In Exodus 25 and 6, it speaks of those who hate him in contrast to those who what? Love him and keep his commandments. Suggesting there this, that if one is not keeping his commandments, then one is in fact what? Hating him. It's as clear as that. Furthermore, here's how even religious people can be hostile to God. Here's how religious people can, in fact, be hostile to God. When they are relying on their own good works, when they are looking to their own religiosity, when they are looking to their church membership, their baptism, how good they are, looking to their self-made religiosity and profess spirituality to put them in good stead with God by passing faith and trust in Christ. As if, Do you know there are people like that today? There are people like that this morning. They're in churches. They're going through ceremonies. They're going through rituals. They're taking communion. They are making confessions. And here's the point. All the while they are doing that, they are doing nothing but to provoke God and in doing that, the word of God teaches they are at enmity with God. You say, how so? Because to use the language of Romans 10, 4, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they are going about to establish their own righteousness that have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of Christ. So whether or not they realize it, when they, whenever persons are resting in their religiosity. Whatever persons are telling you how good they are, trusting in their churchianity, trusting in their communion, trusting in their confession to some priest. Here's the point. They are being hostile toward God. Why? Because they are bypassing the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Paul was one such person, remember? Remember? Deeply religious, yet he hated God. 
Though deeply and passionately religious, yet he hated the name of Christ. The word of God tells us in the book of Acts chapter 9 verse 1 how that he was breathing out threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. Later in Acts chapter 9 verses 3 and 4, he was confronted by the Lord Jesus who appeared to him inquiring, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now watch this. 1 Timothy 1.13, what does Paul tell us there? He tells us that he did it in ignorance. He did it in ignorance. That's his confession. Yet by his own testimony, as recorded in Scripture, Paul admitted, in essence, that he was thereby hating God. Because look at what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted, not just Christ, but I persecuted the church of God, and I tried to what? Destroy it. Paul says, in essence, even though I was ignorant, even though I was unconscious, yes, I was deeply religious, yet at heart I was intent on destroying the people of God and the church of God. You ask, are people today still hostile toward God? Absolutely. In fact, one basic way in which unconverted display hostility to God can be seen in the way they deny the reality of his having created this world. They'd rather subscribe to the theory of evolution. They'd rather believe that this world evolved, just came up spontaneously, just like that, than believe that this world is the product of an intelligent, divine creator. They hate God. And why? Simply because they do not think it fit to acknowledge God. Romans chapter 1 verse 28. Despite the fact that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. Romans chapter 1 verse 19. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived from the beginning of the world, being seen in the things that are made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but nor glorify him as God, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Haters of God. Why? Because they are of the flesh. They set their minds on the flesh. You see, those who are in the flesh are hostile toward God. Why? Because, among other things, they detest the ideal of their being ultimately accountable to God for their sins. They hate the fact that God's truth is absolute, that his standard is holy, and because they're not prepared to change their ways, to amend their ways, to let it conform to the word of God, they resist the truth of God, and hence they hate God. Watch this, nice people. I know some people who are even, you would say, truth be told, might be better than some of us in terms of how they live. You're having a nice conversation with them, a warm conversation, talk about sports, talk about weather. But the moment you begin to talk about God, begin to talk about Christ, they put up a wall. Why is that? Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God and it cannot. Paul says there, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot submit to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, you see, because at heart, the flesh darkened in mind and hardened in heart has no interest in dealing with God on his own terms. You say to somebody, you need to be saved. Would you like to be saved? Yes, I'd like to be saved. You give them the conditions. They say, but, but, but. The flesh, you see, is all a matter of self-love, self-will. You tell them that they're a sinner, they hate it. Why? Because of pride. The flesh is all a matter of self-love, self-will, self-prize. And so in the very nature of the case, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice that last clause, they cannot please God. Underscored there is the utter helplessness and depravity of humanity outside the aid of the Spirit of God. They can't be saved on their own terms. They can't be saved on their own. Why? Because being in the flesh, they're in servitude to the flesh. They're in servitude to sin. They're in servitude to the devil. But notice verse 9, such, Paul says, do not have the spirit of God. They do not, at ends, they do not belong to God. You say, that's unkind. I didn't say that. That's what the word of God says. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and if any man does not have the spirit of God, he does not belong to him. 
But praise God, here's the good news. Through the liberating work of the Spirit of God, they have, those who have placed faith and trust in Christ, those who are truly saved, they have a new orientation. They have a new orientation, a new orientation whereby their minds are set on the Spirit such that they not only desire but do the will of God. A radically new orientation whereby they are no longer in the flesh but are in the spirit even as the spirit is dwelling in them. So that whereas they once had no desire for God, no intention of pleasing God, no intention of submitting to the law of God, all that has now changed to the glory and praise of the power and grace of God. That is why scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What does life in the spirit look like? What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? First of all, as we have seen, it's a life that's marked by a new preoccupation. Second, it's a life of a new orientation. And then thirdly, it's a life that's driven by a new motivation. Life in the Spirit is a life that's driven by a new motivation. Verses 10 and 11. First of all, in verse 10, Paul brings into focus the new identity of the believer as against his old identity. Here's what he says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Here's the A part of verse 10, the believer's identity, the believer's identity is defined in terms of the indwelling presence of Christ. Does that grip you? You know, People today make a great deal, a big deal of who they are, what their identity is, and oftentimes their identity is defined in terms of what they have, is determined in terms of where they live. Crazily today for some people, their identity is wrapped up in their skin color. Listen to the identity of a true believer in Christ. A true believer in Christ is not known according to the flesh. A true believer is known by the fact that Christ is in them. A true believer is known by the fact that they are in Christ and that Christ is in them. A Christian is essentially one in whom Christ resides. If somebody says, somebody asks us a question at a pop quiz, what is a Christian? A Christian is one in whom Christ resides. That's simple. But if Christ is in you, Paul says in verse 10, this is tantamount to saying, but since Christ is in you. Once again, Paul is alluding here to his recurrent theme of union with Christ. And what is union with Christ? As we have said time and again, union with Christ is this, that from God's reckoning, from God's vantage point, when Christ died, you see, and when he was buried, when he rose again from the dead, from God's vantage point, from God's reckoning, those of us who have placed faith and trust in him, he sees us as having what? Died with Christ. He sees us as having been raised with Christ. And that union, Paul teaches, the word of God teaches, has implications for how we live. Now, by virtue of union with Christ, the fact that Christ is in you, the Christian, Paul is saying, the body is dead because of sin. The body is dead because of sin. We have here the believer's old identity. So what is the believer's old identity? He's walking around. She is walking around. I am walking around. You are walking around in a body. In a body that is dead because of sin. Think of that. What is our new identity? We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Though indwelt by Christ, the word of God is teaching, the believer on account of the ill effects of sin, presently retains a body that both bears the seed of death and is subject to death. The fact is this, that becoming a Christian then does not mean, does not mean, does not in any way reverse the ravaging effects of sin on our bodies. On this side eternity, that is. That is why, like everyone else, you see, the Christian suffers aches and pains, Poor eyesight, poor hearing, experiences fatigue, sickness, and ultimately death. And let me tell you this, try as we may, even though saved, 
some of these things, I'm talking about myself too, some of these things are going to take us to the grave. That's the reality. Becoming saved, becoming in Christ, Christ dwelling in us does not mean that the condition of our bodies are necessarily going to get better. In fact, here's what the Apostle Paul says, though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Paul says, he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2, for in this, speaking of this body, we groan, we groan to put on our heavenly dwelling. He further says in Romans 8, 23, the whole creation is groaning and travailing in the pangs of childbirth, and not only creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What this means then, you see, there's a teaching abroad today that as long as you're Christian, you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not supposed to know sickness. Not true, not true. Praise God, the reversal of that condition awaits the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when we shall be changed. Our bodies are going to be transformed, are going to be fashioned according to his glorious body. Now with this sobering word, and we're winding down this morning, with this sobering word regarding our old identity in connection with this body, Paul adds this comforting truth in the B part of verse 10. Here's what he says. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. His point here is this, that despite the presence of death and decay in this body of ours, this mortal body of ours, the believer nevertheless possesses life. Life through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer. And that's comforting. That's comforting to know we are walking around with bodies that are decaying, bodies that are dying daily. Do you know every single day, I'm being rhetorical, you know this, every day we wake up, we are one step away from the grave. You know, you might not like to think of it, but we are one step away. Every single day draws us closer and closer to, to the grave. Why? Because our bodies bear the marks. They bear the seed of decay and death. And yet Paul tells us, Paul gives the wonderful, glorious news that although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. He's saying here that in view of the fact, go back to verse 4, in view of the fact that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the spirit's presence in our lives, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, imparts to us eternal life, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Paul continues in verse 11, The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now I want us to listen very carefully as we draw to a close. What is Paul saying here in verse 11? With reference to such passages as 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 58, Philippians chapter 3, 20, 21, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 John 3, verse 2, Romans 8 and verse 23. We don't have time to look at those verses, but in light of those verses, I've cited for you. The traditional and most popular interpretation of these verses is that the resurrection of Christ is the resurrection of the body of believers. Now, as true and wonderful as that reality is of our being raised from the dead because Christ rose from the dead, as true as that is, this does not seem to be Paul's teaching here in this verse. Look at the verse again. Paul says in verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the spirit's indwelling presence, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm suggesting it doesn't seem to be Paul's teaching here that he's talking about a future resurrection of our bodies on account of Jesus' own resurrection. Remember what we said when we are reading scripture, when we are interpreting a verse or a passage of scripture, three things we must note in mind. You might want to note, write them down. One is context. Two, just, just put ditto, ditto, same thing. Context, context, context. In this epistle of Romans, notice that Paul uses the word body. 
with its plural bodies some 13 times, seven of which times he is referring to the literal physical body. Watch that. Read, watch the context. The context of Romans, Paul also, notice, in addition to referring to the body, physical body, as many as seven times, referring to the various parts of the body, he uses the word members as many as nine times. So what? In total, Paul refers to the physical body some 16 times. Paul really, if we stop to think of it, has a great deal to say about the body as it relates to our spiritual lives. And let me show you how this unfolds in Romans. The very first chapter, as Paul describes for us life in the Gentile world, what with all its ugliness and depravity, recall in chapter 1 and verse 24 how that he characterized the pagan world. What was one of the things that marked them? He says this, they dishonored their bodies among themselves. From the very first chapter, he's talking about the physical body. Chapter 6, verse 6, watch this. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin there, I suggest, is the physical body. Why? Because later on he says, don't let sin dwell in the members of your body. Chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Chapter 6, verse 13, do not present the members, your members, that is the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your hands, your eyes, your feet, to God as instruments for righteousness. And then who knows Romans 12 verse 1? Class, everybody here knows it. The human body again, very important. Paul is suggesting that how we use our bodies relates to how much we are Christians. Here's what he says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies! A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And here's the point that I'm making in view of the preponderant references to the physical body. It appears that here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, Paul's teaching is this. That the Spirit of God who indwells the believer, here's the point, the Spirit of God who indwells the believer will give life, that is to say, energizing life, empowering life, quickening life to the believer's body, which in consequence of union with Christ is dead to sin, right? How valid is this interpretation? We're going to put it to the test. Let's put it to the test. Look down at verse 13. There Paul, notice what Paul does. Paul speaks of what? Putting to death the deeds of what? The body. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. How are we going to put to death the deeds of the body? He tells us we do that by the Spirit. So here's the point. Paul is saying there in verse 11, we have a new expectation. We have a new motivation. And here's a new motivation. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that very spirit who lives in us, will quicken our mortal bodies. What with all their loss, what with all their impulses, sinful impulses to think the wrong things, to say the wrong things, the Holy Spirit will energize this body that is dead to sin through union with Christ and will actually make us serve God, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That's how you get Romans 12, verse 1, presenting your bodies. Life in the Spirit, then, first of all, is a life that is marked by a new preoccupation. The true believer will set his or her mind on the Spirit. It's a life of a new orientation. And according to our text, life in the Spirit, finally, is a life that comes under a new obligation. It's a life that comes under a new obligation. We won't have time to develop this, but we see this in verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And these words, so then, at the beginning of the sentence, introduces what is to be unfolded here in verses 12 and 13 as the consequent implication of the truths taught in verses 10 and 11. In a word, what is Paul saying here? Paul 
His point is this, that since the body of the believer in Christ is dead to sin, through union with Christ, and is enlivened by the Spirit on account of the righteousness that's secured by Christ, Paul is saying that in consequence of that truth, the believer owes nothing to the old fleshly nature and should therefore not give in to its dictates. That's what he's saying. Why? He's saying because you're under new obligation. You have a new president who is resident in your heart. No longer is the flesh dominating, and because of the new president who is resident in the heart, we are therefore not obliged to follow the dictates of the flesh. We are under moral compulsion, moral obligation to follow the dictates of the flesh. Because notice the warning as we close. He says, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul in this passage so far, Romans chapter 8, is underscoring the believer's eternal security. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the flesh could not do, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, so that we would not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Why? Because if we walk according to the flesh, to begin with, it shows you are never really saved, and that will take you to a path of eternal death. I close by saying this morning, anyone you see who is a professing believer and is resting securely, nicely in his or her heart and mind, that they are sweetly saved, eternally saved. The Bible does not teach that because the Bible teaches that the faith that justifies is the very faith that will also sanctify. For if any man is in Christ, he's going to be what? A new creation. He's, he's going to have a new orientation. He's going to have a new disposition. The Christian is one who has come under a new obligation, not to live according to the flesh. They are debtors not to the flesh, but to the spirit. May God bless these truths to our hearts this day. Let me say this. You're not saved. You need to be saved. It's not a pretty picture to be in the flesh because just by being in the flesh, Scripture says, that itself is enmity with God. But that can be changed. That's the glorious news of the gospel. It can be changed through faith and trust in Christ, coming to him, recognizing him as having died for sin and having condemned sin in the flesh so that his righteousness might be fulfilled in us. We don't have a righteousness that can merit God's acceptance. It's only in Christ that we are righteous.